Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said one or two times, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollar on. Uh, it, it can be confusing on which way to, pl- what game to play next and which way to turn. There are just too many good games out there. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast, to explore the gaming industry as a whole, um, to talk about games that my guests and I have enjoyed playing, and to uh, talk about gaming events that we have played in. Now, it is a, it is a rare uh, treat to have a, a hobby hero on. Uh, I do like to have lots of uh, some old friends on to talk about the games that we love. Uh, and in some cases, we get to talk to the people who have written those games. And uh, this man is, I'm proud to say, a regular now. Um, uh, friend of the cast, the, the man whose name graces quite a few titles on my shelf. Uh, and, of course, we're talking partial creator of Bolt Action, uh, we're talking the author of Warlords of Erewhon, uh, Gates of Antares, and of course, Warhammer 40,000. There's only one man who I could be talking about. The man, the myth, the legend, the one and only. Rick Priestley, welcome back to Cast Ice. Hiya, Brad. Well, that was quite a build-up. As, as, as per usual, I shall, uh, I shall fail to live up to expectations. <laughs> Hardly, Rick. Hardly. Oh, man. Well, we had so much feedback from the last time you were on uh, that it was only natural that we invite you back after Cast Dice's two-year birthday. um, We had to have back one of our most popular guests. That would be your wonderful self. Complaints, I assume. Uh, We deluged with with angry letters. Hey, that's how this show usually runs, so I think we're all right there. Uh, you're in good company with me then, Rick. Um, but uh, look, it, it's, I think it's timely um, because you have, um, and we'll get to the, broad, the broader arc in a minute, but just to uh, quickly tease what we'll be talking about later, um, you have continued to support Warlords of Erewhon after the game has come out, it, it being sort of uh, a game that you sat down to write in, in I'm quoting you here, not me, um, in your quote-unquote retirement, um, a game you keep supporting and putting out new army lists for, um, I believe we're up to six or no seven new armies um, for the game that have been released through your website, and you gave away sort of the keys to the castle and gave out how you create your army list, as in the formula system. Um, you've been a yeah, busy man. And as- uh, yeah, well, the points values I had to do anyway. I did that before I um, before the book was published, but right. uh, I just tidied it up, took out took out all of the um, uh, you know all of the kind of just hints. What what I'd normally do is I'd construct a system, but, but pretty much shorthand, um, you know, pencil on the back of a notepad sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then type it up. But um, I, uh, for for somebody else to use it, it needed to be a little bit more um, uh, explanatory, which yeah. I did. Nice. Yeah, that seems to have gone down well. I, I, sometimes I, I'm very nervous about putting a points value system out there because all it does is it exposes all the mistakes you've made. <laughs> Otherwise, might have gone unnoticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and occasionally you make a jump. You go, you know, this works out at, say, 10 points, but it really isn't worth 10 points for yeah. some reason. So you might go, let's, let's, it's going to be nine or it's going to be eight. Uh, but, of course, as soon as you put the points value system out there, all those little tweaks that you've kind of 
uh, made on judgment, they uh, they suddenly become, oh, what is this one right? Is this one right? Yeah. Yeah, well, actually, it sort of is right. It's just I, I, I made a judgment. But there you go. We'll leave it to uh, nerds like us to uh, to to look into games that we love and um, within minutes try and break the damn thing. Um, as a game writer, I'm sure that's uh, or as a game creator, I should say that uh, must be frustrating. Slash, I don't know. Is it is it humbling? Is it is it is it a compliment that everyone gets so excited <laughs> about these damn things? Um, I know some people take it personally. Uh, Having talked to you before, you don't seem to. Um, what are your sort of thoughts on people uh, really, you know, n- nitpicking every little point value of a thing that you've spent so long creating? I don't know. I mean, from the from day from day one when we produced the first version of Warhammer, uh, you know, it got it got slammed and poor reviews, and people say, "Oh, this is just just nonsense. It's buckets of dice." And it's, it, it's simplistic. It's aimed at children. Dot dot dot. Yeah, you can, you know, every single thing we've done, uh, mm. uh, uh, Games Workshop, and then it all. It's people just find whatever it is, they'll find things to say, and I just don't worry about it. It's, yeah. it's like the you write the games for the people that enjoy them, and people that enjoy them are often quite critical or or make points about things that they either personally would have done differently. Mm-hmm. But I always go, yeah, well, you weren't doing it. I was doing it. Uh, that's the decision I made. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, uh, if you want to join, join in, if you want to change it, change it. If you, you know, I don't, I don't feel that these things are, um, uh, works of art in a, in a high sense there. I like to think they're carefully crafted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately my aim would be to create something that's more of a sand pit. Nice. Yeah. Than, well, I, a, a, than stone it, thing, an artifact. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It makes me laugh to hear you say that when Warhammer came out that everyone said it was for children, given that, um, of course, Rogue Trader, which is the first edition of Warhammer 40,000, um, was, by definition, almost more of a role-playing game than it was a tabletop war game at times. And I, I very yeah. firmly uh, or fondly remember, and I'm not even sure this was legal, but my friends and I were playing, and I had a psyker pick up a land raider and drop it on his general. And I, I but, the, <laughs> but the rules, I mean, were a little more complex than what we would consider a Warhammer game now. Um, and to hear someone say that it's simplistic and for children, having been a child who played that game, um, it, it was infinitely more complex than what you would have today. Um, so I think that, I think yeah. that says a lot about where maybe the well, gaming industry is gone. Well, you, you know, adult, this was certainly true in the seventies and eighties and probably later and later, even probably, probably true today, but, um, most adults really underestimate what uh, teenagers, I say teenagers rather than children, mm. because to my mind, somebody who's 14, 15, 16 isn't really a child. Right. Uh, and even, you know, even even a bit younger than that, uh, anyone old, older than about 11, really, they're incredibly um, focused and can absorb uh, information like a sponge in right. ways in which adults find perplex. I mean, I, I mean I'm talking, you know, mature uh, uh, particularly middle-aged people find mm-hmm. utterly perplexing, and the number of times uh, we was uh, we would be speaking as a management team to uh, city bankers, uh, uh, financiers, you know, high-flying, very intelligent, often Cambridge, Oxford University educated people who looked mm-hmm. at our stuff and, and were just baffled by it, and their premise was that oh, you have to make it simpler for children. <laughs> 
Oh, no, you, what, <laughs> no, if you they don't. try to give yeah. us advice, it would be, you need to make this simpler so children are going to understand it. And I go, no, actually, you don't get it. It's you that doesn't understand it. Right. The children, i.e. teenagers, they don't even blink. They absolutely throw themselves into it. They absorb it like a sponge. They have far better understanding of how this game works and it's structured than all these so-called grown-ups. It's true. Who are dealing with millions of pounds and making decisions that affect our lives. Uh, and it's just the way it is. Um, yeah. And I think one of the great uh, uh, advantages that we had is we didn't actually underestimate the 14-year-olds. Because, and I say 14, because that was sort of where we tended to find our, when I, I'm talking about Games Workshop, mm -hmm. that's where we tended to find our um, our median age, age range mm -hmm. customer was. But I always I always wrote games for my younger self. So I knew they would appeal to my older self <laughs> and to right. older players too. But uh, I had my younger self in mind when I wrote them. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, I think I, I say it comes across, but it comes across in terms of explanation. Because I do remember picking up games and being baffled by them. Yes. Because they were never explained very well yeah, yeah. I, i'm really going back this is like the 70s yeah uh i remember the first set of wrgh rules we picked up which would be second or third edition and just being utterly baffled by how the units set up and the and moved because it wasn't really explained it was just taken as read that you knew how to play yeah um exactly and there you go. A, lot, a lot of early rules like that yeah I, I see, and you'll, anyway. <laughs> please excuse me if I've made this joke before when you were on, Rick, but I, I, it, it, I want to say I might have, but I, I was, um, my best friend growing up wasn't allowed to interact with, with comic books or, you know, regular uh, commercial television, and so he was very limited at what he was allowed to do. His parents wanted him to be a good young man, and of course, that didn't always work out for him, um, as in <laughs> what he grew into. However, um but he was allowed one television show, and it was Star Trek. And so, because he did, I uh, I learned, uh, or and he was interested in the games that I was playing. Uh, so I went out as a kid and bought Starfleet Battles, and I read it, and I reread it, and I read it again. And even as a kid, when I would just devour rule sets, I basically grew up reading these things. I still don't get that game. And I swear, I, I, I still maintain you need some sort of community college course to be able to have played that rule set. And it was just brutal. Old school rule sets were not player yeah. friendly. Um, I think the first no. game well, I picked up that was, was possibly Battletech. Um, but yeah, I mean, even yeah. Car Wars was more of a, a car combat simulator than it was, for example, an actual fun game. Um, and I love that game. Yeah. Anyway. Well, well it, it, I think, you know, back in the 70s in particular, because computers weren't a thing, uh, mm. you know, they, they, they didn't exist except in big office buildings where right. they were the size of fridges. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a huge sort of cult for simulation wargaming where you did a lot of calculation. Mm. Um, the sort of thing that a computer would do just so easily these days. Right. Uh, uh, and I think that 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 style of wargaming has turned into video gaming, really. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. And the video games of today, of course, um, I think it's less of a mathematical simulation and more of a visual one. But yeah, no, absolutely. Um, 
It's a very good point. It's a very good point. Well, all right. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, the last time you were on. Now, um, the last year you were on, we talked a little bit about um, you know your last years of Games Workshop. Um, we talked about um, the the death of Warhammer um, and what that looked like before the current plan that turned into Age of Sigmar. Um, and a lot of people said they really liked that story. Now, I've been to games days with you. Um, I've been to some after parties around you. Uh, I'm sure there are some great anecdotes out there. Anything spring to mind as um, a good anecdote for a Rick Priestley, um, uniquely Rick experience that might be fun for listeners to hear? Well, I don't know. There's so many things, Brad, but uh, I, I don't know whether it'd be interesting or not. I, I did remember very early on when we first moved to our factory at Eastwood, mm-hmm. um, and we we had quite a bit. It was quite big compared to the factory we'd had previously, which was a, a, an old Victorian uh, sweatshop room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was a brand new factory, and it had two ten thousand square foot warehouses, one of which we were using, and one of which we knew we'd expand into. Mm-hmm. When we moved in, it was empty. So we decided to have the uh, a kind of a, a games day equivalent. Oh, this, oh nice. This big open warehouse. Yeah, mm-hmm. these, in, in this factory at Eastwood. Uh, and we did. And um, we set up tables and everything and uh, uh, invited people. And we got quite a few people coming in. It was on, it was on ticket, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was running uh, a bring and battle for Warhammer. And... Uh, I, I, I'd not really prepared anything. You can't really for bringing battle. People just bring their units right. and they fight. So all you do is kind of umpire it or try to. <laughs> and I yeah. turned up uh, and uh, there was going to be two. Uh, I was going to be umpiring it. And there were two, two of our guys were going to be like the chief commanders to the other side. And, the, uh, and one of them was Gary Chalk, who, who worked for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I turned up and I think, We'd been celebrating the night before. Mm-hmm. I don't know what. Celebrating the pub's opening. Yes. Uh, but uh, that day, <laughs> I, I just I, I was I was pretty hungover. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was a bit out of it. I turned up, oh whatever, and uh, people had turned up with their games, uh, with their uh, uh, units, uh, and uh, I'd, I'd pretty much be okay. You know, that's a unit of dark elves. That's fine. I can cope with that. That's a unit of goblins. That's it. And they started fighting. It was all very amiable. And this mm-hmm. young kid turns up with a balrog <laughs> and i looked at this thing and i thought oh i can't uh, oh, yeah. yeah okay just put it on you'll be fine yeah and this kid had obviously gone through i mean he was a kid too you know he was like uh he was 12 let's yeah. say you know uh, so you know you didn't want to be rude or you didn't want to be unaccommodating and you know, mm-hmm. oh bless him sort of thing <laughs> exactly. there, he'll be fine the others will look after him and he he totally he'd, he'd, he'd got everything off pat including all of the spells and everything and he just proceeded to sort of like destroy everything on the table and everyone else was getting a bit pissed off with this mm-hmm. as you can imagine and, I, and i've just got and i'm there oh yeah could you, I, I, I don't know i was just not i was i was just not quite there <laughs> and in the end we had we had to kind of abandon the game and gary gary was getting increasingly pissed off <laughs> this whole thing so uh what what uh, what I thought would be a sort of like poor poor little lad he doesn't know he's bought a bell rod just turned out to be a complete mess. Yeah. And there you go. 
And that just shows you what kids do now. <laughs> yes, right? And uh, we used to have a, a trophy for that at some of the 40K events, yeah, where that nice little kid shows up or that, you know, innocent, fresh-faced gamer, and then, the, you know, they smash through everything in their path, and you gave them the Bloodthirster Award because there was literally nothing stopping them, and they just truck through yes. everything, and you go, oh, oh, I didn't see I that coming. This one was to be encouraged. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe next time you should take a goblin. All right, buddy, sit down. Yeah, no, no, man. Oh, <laughs> definitely been there. All right, Rick. Uh, a lot of people ask, and these are the questions that people do ask. Um, when the authors write these games, what um, what is their army? Now, I know when we first spoke way back when on the Warlord cast. When Warlords of Erewhon was just coming out, and you had been spending a lot of time uh, working on your gnolls, and it's why the gnoll army list is in the book. Um, are you still playing gnolls? Yes. Are there other armies that you've been dabbling with, uh, especially now that the new ones are out? Yeah, I've just had some more lizard men painted up. Uh, nice. So, uh, so I can broaden what I've got for that. It's a little bit basic at the moment uh, mm. i've not done a lot more with my nords i've got a playable warband together and um my ambition was to add some uh, chariots to it and i've just not got uh the the main the main one i tend to use for everyone is really barbarians oh uh, really which are uh, uh yeah because i've got so many uh celts uh, in particular of course and uh, uh and i don't know if you know but years and years and years ago i actually made some celts which were um which were released sh- for a short while by um, Wargames Foundry. Really? Um, and they're not, yeah, they're not really up to modern, they weren't even up to modern standards at the time, but I think they did them as a bit of a favour. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've got quite a lot of those, uh, which I uh, uh, quite enjoy using. Now, when you say um, you had those made, did you make them or did you commission someone to yeah, sculpt no, them I, up for you? I, no, I sculpted them, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're... Uh, are there yeah, pictures of these somewhere? <laughs> well, Rick, um, come on. If, Rips, if Rick Priestley sculpts a range, I mean, one must see these somewhere. Um, are they on, I'm, I'm assuming they're on the, the all-knowing, all-seeing internet somewhere? Or is this one of those things that we're going to have to pry pictures out of you and share it through the Facebook page? Uh, yeah, you might have to. I could photograph, uh, it's not a huge, I haven't got a huge amount, but mm. I could photograph them and put them onto uh, Facebook. People would laugh at them. I they, um, doubt that. I mean, that's great. I mean, you yeah. sculpted it. It is, has someone who's sculpted some very mediocre models myself. I'm sure you've done a better job. And um, when you say you sculpted a, like a range's worth, how many, because that, that requires a lot of individual work. Did you do like a core group and cast them out into larger numbers? Tell us about this. Yeah, ba- basic tech. Bear in mind, I used to make 15 mil figures. I used to make 15 millimeter figures for tabletop games. I didn't know that. Before I joined Games Workshop. Yeah, I sculpted um, I sculpted quite a few. I did uh, the Norman Saxon and Saxon range, Pony Wars range. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colo- I did a Colonial Zulu range uh, oh. and some Ancients. I did um, Seleucid. Uh, what else has it? Yeah, that, that, so you know, that, and those are, when I say a range, I mean they were you know, quite quite big ranges, about a dozen figures per range or more. So I'd already sculpted quite a quite a bit, so I, I wasn't like starting afresh. Right. Uh, and 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 before that, before I went to college, I did a few pieces for Asgard, 
but that you know it was back in the day when the bar was very low and i should emphasize this <laughs> uh, uh and, I, and i was sculpting in milliput mm-hmm. uh, green stuff didn't come out and well we didn't find it in england until uh, early 80s mm-hmm. but when i joined games workshop which was 1982 mm-hmm. the perrys was still sculpting in um milliput and tom meyer from Ralpatha, he came over because we, we had a we had a kind of a, a deal going with Rob Potha where we uh, produced Rob Potha figures in in the UK mm-hmm. and Rob Potha produced Citadel figures in the US. I remember that, yeah. So, yeah. So, um, and, and as part of that sort of deal, uh, and, and I, I suspect because he, he, he was interested in travel, um, uh, Tom came over to the UK and he stayed with Brian uh, or various people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I briefly had him as a lodger, but uh, owing to the fact that my house was such a dump, it, I think he more or less decided to uh, give up on it. <laughs> uh, right on. Uh, but but he introduced green stuff to the UK. So before <laughs> that, we all sculpted in milliput. Uh, and what I would do is um, it's just, basic, just basic technique, really. You make a wire armature, mm-hmm. as you'd expect. You know, I mean, I'm sure most people have seen these processes. You make a wire armature and you build up a basic body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually what you do is you build up a body in a pose and then another body in another pose. And you leave off things like the hands. Right. So you just have little wires sticking out of the hands. Mm-hmm. And you'd usually leave out the head and you'd leave off the any uh, weapons and um, extra detail. So you basically just got a figure. In, I mean, if it's Celt, which mine was, you've just got a figure in trousers and a tunic. Um, and you cast that into tin. Mm-hmm. So you've now got a basic dolly, right. uh, and then you uh, make you individually dress it, you animate it, which you just do by cutting behind the legs and reposing, or cutting the arms and reposing. Sometimes right. you just cut a whole arm off and repose it because if you want a figure that's actually striking overhead, it's not just the arm that moves; it's the whole shoulder girdle. Right. You know, you, you, and this is the mistake people make with plastic figures. You know, they look like an action man. Yes. Because there's no movement in the spine. You know what I mean? They're just like very – Yeah. I hate that. So, you know, a figure really – if you stand in front of a mirror and um, and just sort of pretend you're striking overhead, you see your whole body adjust to that. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, you have to make a specific, but you can do that. Uh, anyway, you um, you put a head on, you put the weapons on, you, put, you, you make a figure, mm-hmm. and then you make that into a master – and then you make a mold. So you might have from an original piece or two or three original pieces, you right. might have a dozen or two dozen different figures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they come back from the uh, master molding process, you can cut a head off and put a different helmet on yeah. and so on. You know, you, you make a variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, and I made a, it wasn't very many because I only, I essentially wanted them for myself. So probably about a dozen different infantry, mm-hmm. There were three different cavalry. I made a horse, which is tricky. I if was going to really say, a... horses are awful. Yeah. I've actually tried that. Yeah, That's terrible. Painting horses is yeah, bad well, enough. My... Sculpting horses yeah, is I think, insane. Do you, do you know what I think I did? I, I, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, but uh, a lot of sculptors, especially in the early days, did this. Is I found a horse I liked that somebody else had done. I think it was a Perry one. It was a Citadel one. Mm-hmm. And you carve it all down. So you're only left with a skeleton, uh, like a frame. Mm-hmm. 
and then you build it back up. Yeah. So essentially, you're using somebody else's uh, model as a dolly, uh, but and you're saving yourself having to make an armature. Yeah, but uh, that's that's so, a fairly so common practice though with a lot of sculptors isn't it i mean that's i mean that's not stealing that's yeah. that's common practice i mean that's if you find something that works as you say you shave it down and then you make it your own um that that i've been seeing those yeah, for years you say, when you look at somebody's greens and you go can you do that because i can see bits and pieces of the model that you had underneath and that is not yours yeah. Yeah, yeah, people have done that for years. Uh, it depends to some extent. I mean, I really did shave it down to make a right a, a thing, but also we're talking about the same company. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, the, exactly. the model belonged to the company that I was doing it for, so it wasn't a uh, too much of an issue. Right. In all the um, fifteen mil figures I did for uh, tabletop, I used their standard horse, so I didn't actually make the horse, although I did sometimes modify it. Right, right. Uh, but that's again, that's, that's fairly common. And in fact, I made a whole series of weapons for uh, uh, that were then used by other people because I was quite a good straight line designer. Nice. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, and I was quite good at making, you know, uh, shields and swords and axes and things like that. Yeah. So, I, had no uh, so idea. I did that. And, I had no idea you were so mm, talented, right? Well, so, wait until you see them, Brad. <laughs> uh, I made a chariot as well. Uh, so, and then what I did is when I got them back uh, as castings. I then modified them again. So a lot of the figures I've got, because I, I wanted them all to be different. Right. So a lot of the figures I've got are actually individual conversions of models mm -hmm. where I'd gone back and put on um, uh, sort of headdresses and things. And there's a sorceress as well. I did a female dolly. And, uh, you know, it's a basic female figure. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and made a, uh, a sorceress and a, uh, uh, a, a kind of... Uh, Female warrior, just one, but as mm -hmm. a character. Uh, That's yeah. fantastic. Oh, mate, I have to see pictures of these. I mean, that that is a true labor of love. That is a project that you brought to creation from nothing. Even if you did, yeah. I mean, maybe carve yes. back someone's horse. I mean, to be able to say that you created something that did not exist, and then you did it, and then you painted it, is... I mean that. Yeah, that's a lot pretty of people special. do it these days. Yeah, it, it, it's funny, isn't it? I, I see on the internet um, a, a lot of amateur sculptors who I look at and I go, you know, if you'd been about in the 1970s, you would have been the world's best sculptor. Yeah. And this and this is something, and they've just gone, oh, I'm not sure about this. What do you think? I don't know why they're showing everyone else, but uh, and I'm looking at it and thinking, you know, that's not. For somebody who's not sculpted professionally and not sculpted, they've, they've perhaps just messed around a bit. Mm -hmm. These are pretty good. Um, there are lots of very good tutorials online, and mm -hmm. we were all learning from each other. Uh, and um, I, I, I'd say that uh, compared to, say, the 1980s and 90s, when I was trying to recruit sculptors for uh, Games Workshop, mm -hmm. there are now so many talented sculptors about. There really are. Uh, and we we pretty much hoovered up all the the pool of um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of sculptors in the UK in the nineties. Yeah, uh, I mean, there were about um, a yeah. dozen. You know? <laughs> well, this is something that I mean we've talked about on this podcast a little bit. Is um, it seems as though maybe it's a, a, a something a side effect of the information age where we're all connecting more regularly and we are finding information we're sharing, you know, experiences, um, and the gaming industry has been around as long as it has 
all of a sudden we have this our shared sort of collective experience um, when it comes to game writing in particular sort of has raised all boats. All games seem to be pretty damn good this day in age in order to survive. But I mean, that goes the same yeah. for painting and that goes the same for um, sculpting. I mean, if you look back at old white dwarves um, or old dragon magazines and you look at the quality of the painting and you compare it to what is considered basic tabletop standard. I mean, technology as far as paints, brushes, washes, all of that has advanced so, so far. And not to say that the olden days weren't great. I absolutely adore you know, I, I, I long for a simpler time sometimes. However, um, <laughs> I mean, just the, just the, uh, the level of quality, especially in the last 10, 15 years has been astonishing. Um, do you find that? I mean, you've been along this yeah. road a lot longer than me. And I thought, I feel like I've been on it for a long time. Um, what are your feelings sure. on that? No, I think you're right there, Brad. It's uh, everything has uh, suddenly become uh, almost professional level from even uh, uh, ordinary hobbyists. Mm. Um, you can't tell how long they're spending on these things. Sometimes I suspect that it's a time issue. Mm. Um, when we were trying to make a living at this in the 70s and 80s, I, I, I mean, let's, say, let's go back to when I first started and I was talking to Brian Ansel, who was at Asgard mm -hmm. Miniatures at the time, 1977, 76, maybe, no, 77, 78. Um, and Brian showed me basically how he made a miniature because I, was, he was, I, I painted a little bit for Asgard. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, well, if you can paint, you can probably sculpt. And I thought, well, yeah, I've always wanted <laughs> to sort of, uh, yeah. mess around with that sort of thing. And I've always been intrigued by the process. And he said, well, this is how I do it. And he showed me how he made a figure. Um, he was using wax. Wow. Uh, as a, yeah, he was using wax to start with. But later he moved, moved on to Milliput and stuff. But he just showed me how he made the figure, how he made the mold, uh, how he cast a basic dolly, and then he cut down the details into the metal. And I think he developed his technique a lot after that. But that was how he started. So Brian encouraged me, and I went home, and I had a go. And he, uh, he, he basically... Uh, looked at the first figure I'd done and said, well, that's not bad, you know. Um, I think we can produce that. I just need to make it. And the first things I did actually got produced by Asgard. So the standard was quite low. <laughs> uh, it, 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 whereas these days, you can never get away with that. Um, but the models that Asgard were making, basically, to earn a living, the story was, if you want to make a living, as a sculptor or you want to be involved in this industry even mm -hmm. as if you want to sculpt to make a decent living at it you have to make a figure a day yes so i've heard that from scratch from scratch yeah one figure a day from scratch so let's say five figures truth was they worked all you worked all all hours but let's say five six figures a week mm -hmm. that would give you a basic living you know not yeah. a lot of money but a basic living 15 mil figures you had to make three a day yeah. So, uh, oh, and when when you had to make three of something a day from scratch, it, sometimes you you had a you, you got to dress the dollies, so that was quicker. But mm -hmm. the originals three day, but you had to make three figures a day. Uh, you learn fast when you go fast. Yes, uh, that's right. You learn slowly if you go slowly, and I think a lot of people stumble when they're sculpt, trying to learn how to sculpt because they try to sculpt something that's perfect. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the best advice Brian ever said to me was make 20 figures 
throw them away and bring me your 21st. <laughs> yeah. Because you learn in your first 20 figures, you'll learn pretty much everything you need to know. Uh, and you, you uh, and you'll learn so much from doing one that your yeah. second one will be twice as good and your third one will be three times and so on and so on until, until you actually get about 20, you don't know how good you are. So I was quite lucky in a way that actually my first one got made. Uh, but yeah, it probably took me a little bit longer than a day. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that was how, uh, that was his advice. And, and it's advice that I, I try to pass on. I wouldn't be so brutal as to say do 20, but um, uh, yeah, whichever, whatever you do, if it's your first model, you, you'll you be justifiably proud of it. But right. by the time you've made five, I've got back, uh, and uh, I, I think that's that's as true today as it was then. You know, if you're quite proud of your first one, it's good. Just think how good you're going to be five more. <laughs> exactly right. And that's uh, that's what to do. Yeah. All right, Rick. We let's let's rain. Let's. I think we're going down uh, many a rabbit hole, and God, I'm enjoying it. But let's get back to uh, Warlords of Erewhon for a second. Let's talk point values because we started there and then we took a hard left and then a hard right and i'm not sure where we, <laughs> what rabbit hole we fell into um point values um now with, i'm i i love this system um and i mentioned the last time you were on that i had tried to deconstruct your points to create um you know rogue trader-esque warhammer 40k um, like the original Rogue Trader Space Marines and the original, original like generic Space Orcs army list for this game. Um, and then I looked back at what I'd deconstructed from what you'd done um, and r- what you actually did. Um, and though I was very close, um, all of a sudden my desire to retcon a whole lot of old armies when I had the actual keys in front of me... Um, sort of disappeared but i there are a lot of really cool models that i have in my cupboard that i now fantasy models that i want to pull back out but when i was retconning just to bring this full circle um i started with um a generic stat from particular armies so when i was doing the space orcs i went back to the generic orcs and then i sort of pulled apart some of the additional abilities by comparing army lists and tried to figure out what actual stats cost um, but it, it, just like with your sculpting where you started with the dolly, I always sort of stripped it back to a base profile and tried to work off of there. Um, and looking at the way that sure. you've done your own point system, that looks very similar to what you've done. Um, now, that, of course, is yeah. reading your notes, not actually what you did. Is that kind of how you operated when you built this system? Yeah, it's exactly the same as when I did the system for uh, the original Warhammer and uh, and 40k as well. Mm. So uh, talk to us a little which, bit about which, how which that actually works. was published. Oh wait, was um, it? Wait, that yeah, that... it was published in um, uh, Forces of Fantasy, I think. It's very early Warhammer. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, it's uh, and it's basically exactly the same as I've done really for um, Erewhon. I mean, mm. the, the the trick is usually I, I go take a human. Because mm-hmm. a human is going to be a base stat. You, you can argue about what an orc's like or even a dwarf or a goblin, but you can't argue about what a human's like. Right. And most things are going to be either tougher than humans 
a stronger tool or whatever mm-hmm. or they're going to be a bit weedy especially if you're thinking lord of the rings you know goblins or whatever mm-hmm. you're going to be a little bit weedy. so so a human is a reasonably good um place to start you know you need some space below and you need some space above mm-hmm. in terms of the points values um and uh, abilities in the game um and um i usually start off with a human is five points and i think i did that in warhammer as well mm. because five points is enough to give you again a little bit of space yeah. so you know a goblin can be three or four uh, and you're not getting to the point whereby your one point increments are um, uh, are too are too um, uh, give you too much, right? Because you want that for weapons and upgrades and things like that. So I generally start at five, um, and then uh, a stat, the stat line for uh, for error one. Again, it's not dissimilar to a stat line I'd do for Warhammer or role playing game or whatever. Um, your uh, it, it's a, it's agility, accuracy, strength, uh, uh, resilience, uh, the uh, resist, if you like, and mm-hmm. initiative and uh, command, uh, and um, they're all they're all d10 uh, stats. So um, uh, a five is a basic fifty percent chance. Right. Um, in Warhammer, a three was a fifty percent chance. That's Because right. it's three. Generally speaking, it was um, three and six. It wasn't the same sort of system, you know. It didn't necessarily have values worked out in that same way, but it was generally three. So threes for Warhammer would generally give you a average. Right. Um, over over time, stat inflation tended to push that. That's mostly because we found it is very difficult to sell something that was below average. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it, it's one of those terrible things where I go, "Yeah, well, I don't care about that." As a games designer, if thing. My goblin is going to be below average. Live with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, the fact that you couldn't make it and sell it for less than the problem. Uh, uh, and uh, which incidentally is why the rat, uh, the Skaven army became what it, it was rather than what it has. We'll come back. Um, really? And then you have your initiative and command stats, which are, um, uh, uh, yeah, what's Skaven? Yeah, we'll come back to that. Yes, I, I, yes, if, please do. Uh, I, I'm uh, very I think we're curious. going to talk about the Rattarob. Yes, we are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, you have your initiative and command stats, which are uh, the ones you use to get units moving in uh, in, in Arrow 1. Mm-hmm. And they're based on 7, so you've got 70% chance of getting something moving. Right. Well, in, um, in, in Warhammer, they were also based on 7s, but with a 2d6, which uh, is right. – uh, which if, if and if you go um, 7 or less on a d10 – that's roughly, um, if I think it's, I'm not quite sure what it is off the top of my head, but um, yeah, it's 60 odd percent chance. It, right. it, it's more likely than not to happen. Mm. Um, so they're actually comparable in terms of what they're doing in the game system. They're just rigged for a different kind of mechanic. Mm. Um, so my base values for, for my human stats are all fives with the initiative and command set at sevens. Mm-hmm. And I, that's an average stat, and I give that five points. And after that, you up a stat or reduce a stat, and you just add or reduce the points value. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and generally, some stats are worth a little bit more than others. Uh, and usually, your stats that are, uh, are protective, you know, the chance of you getting killed stat mm-hmm. is worth more than your chance of moving or your, or your move-based stat. Right. Uh, 
then your chance of hitting something or striking or causing damage in combat is worth more than your chance of doing that at range because range attacks are usually a little bit less effective. Right. The things which are going to win you the game are getting into combat and surviving. Mm-hmm. So those are the things which cost you more points. And I generally, in error one, I just doubled it. So each pip of strength, which is your core chance of causing of hitting, uh, is two points, whereas your agility, which is your chance of making a move or surviving a, uh, or not taking a pin when you run, things like that, mm-hmm. they're one point. Right. Uh, and similarly, for a command and initiative, initiative's chance of making a reaction, not that important. You can do without that one point uh, but your basic command which is your chance of uh, making a move at all especially once you've got pins mm-hmm. uh, two points and I just did that and, and that seemed to work fine yeah it falls apart slightly with uh, very very low values where they reduce down to zero quite quickly oh, uh, okay. and it falls apart at higher values where some of the things chariots uh, in particular um, didn't quite it didn't quite mesh, and that's mostly because the value in chariots is not in the stat line so much as in the um, uh, the amount of damage you can do on impacts and things right. like that. Uh, so, but that's it. That's that's it really. Mm. Um, and then you add on for um, uh, for, for weaponry. Mm-hmm. Armor adds on automatically because it adds on to res. Right. Exactly. And that's it. it. It's not a. It's a fairly basic way of doing of uh, of working out base points values and that's how i do everything mm. um not terribly not terribly sophisticated some special abilities add on per model mm-hmm. but other special abilities are only really relevant to a unit so they add on per unit right uh yeah and uh, and, and so on on the whole i tend to make special abilities relatively expensive because i tend to think the gamers are very good at extracting value from things mm. better than me often. <laughs> and it's better to err on the side of, ex- of it being more expensive. And if people say, oh, no, these aren't worth that. And they go, fine, don't use it. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, an, an army on the whole shouldn't be all elite troops. Right. If you make them all elite troops because it's worth it, it's slightly yeah. wrong. Yeah. You everyone will. Going, mm. yeah, yeah, everyone will. Everyone's an elite then. You go, well, actually... Give a f- if you can only go afford to give one or two units that elite, maybe it's not worth it. But I'll tell you what, when you play, that elite unit will become the unit that wins the game because yeah. you'll use it properly. Exactly. Where every, everything's an elite, you just throw everything in. Um, so I tend, to, I tend to be a little bit wary of criticism that goes, these aren't worth this. Right. But occasionally you make the mistake that's the other way around. You make something too cheap. Because you haven't spotted a combination usually or a combination um, in a particular army or force. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, that, and when that happens, people just pile into it. That's no right. one goes, well, I won't use it because it's a bit too good. <laughs> they're yeah. not that way inclined. <laughs> no, usually they're not. So yeah. that's why, for example, in most of the army lists, there's one elite unit. And it has um, this the stipulation that you can, uh, if I can read this, include a maximum of one dot, dot, dot guards mm. in your warband. It's to um, yeah. prevent people from taking all the quote-unquote best thing. Yeah, it's to make them special. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, and, and it gives the army a character. I, I used to do Warhammer armies the same way. Mm. Um, 
the the thing about Warhammer is as it did, and 40k is as they developed, they became far more um, geared towards what people in the shops wanted to sell, mm-hmm. rather than the games. Yeah, uh, and some of the limits got taken off because there was a feeling that well, you can only have 20 of these in an army or 10 of these in an army. So, and people want more and we could sell more. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you can see what happened, what would happen, the pressure would come on. Now, I always resisted that. I always made the case that the game had to have integrity. Yeah. Uh, but once I stepped away from running the studio and I stepped away from doing the game's design, you know, I, I, I had less influence on the process. Yeah. And to some extent, I felt that other people should be making those decisions. And it was, you know, the baton had been passed on. Mm-hmm. You can't snipe from the back row. No, exactly. Uh, occasionally, something would be so terrible, you, you felt obliged. But, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. on the whole, you can't. You have to let people do their own thing. Yeah. Uh, and I felt that that's what happened. It just it, it got out. Uh, uh, some, some of the things that I've regarded as being... I don't know what would you say? Almost like keystones in the game design mm-hmm. became compromised, uh, and uh, uh, and that that's one of them. It's the it's the limiting things by type to create what I regard as a credible force. Right. Uh, I, I've not played Age of Sigma, uh, uh, and I don't know how it's worked. But I gather that it's a quite an open system. Uh, it you is. Tell me. <laughs> uh, I have yeah. not actually played more than a couple of little practice experiences, and it. Um, I struggle making armies with what I have. Um, I find it to okay. be one of the most, on one hand, very open, and um, a lot of the army lists are inclusive of a lot of units from what might be considered a lot of armies in the olden days. Um, but it's also incredibly frustrating and limiting and in really bizarre ways. And I keep having, I keep like trying to put an army on the table and realizing I'm several units short when I have figure cases of models from that, those particular ranges and go, how am I short? I have all of these <laughs> fours. Anyway. Ah, yes. Age of Sigmar. Yeah. Um, well, of course, yeah. Era 1 is designed to facilitate the collections you've got. So ideally, you should be able to put together some sort of force. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I have many, and uh, it's one of my favorite games because of it. Um, Well, uh, if I may, I am going to jump from army creation to uh, specifically some of the armies I'm very excited about. Now, of course, the last time you were on, you teased... um, Oh, why am I blanking now? You, You teased the samurai, of course, which came out. Um, oh, and Snake Men. Okay. And so Samurai and Snake Men came out, um, and you, at the same time, sort of updated all of the army lists that appeared in the book through your website. So you updated um, unit entries, you changed and modified some of the weapon options and some of the, uh, for some of the units, uh, and some of the point values changed um, as people play-tested the game, and, you know, as you found little things that may have needed fixing, um, or things you wanted to just modify for taste. But then you added several more army lists. So um, I guess the first big one since all of that was the redone reptiles, which should be said, it's not a redo, I should say, because it is not the snake man list that a lot of people said, oh, Rick has put out a snake man list. This must be a lizard person list. Well, now there's an actual reptiles list, which sort of is more encompassing of, um, you know, some of the more generic, um, more commonly available 
uh, lizard, reptile-esque humanoid models yeah. on the market. Yeah, well, when when I do all the lists, I, I, I kind of bearing in mind the collections that people I know mm. or me have, which tend to be Games Workshop, which tend to be Warhammer. Right. Um, but there are other companies that have kind of piled in and produced Me Too ranges to mm -hmm. some extent that replicate that. And other people have done ranges which are more in a different fancy tradition. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Samurai, for example, I don't think Games Workshop do it. We did years and years ago do a right. Samurai range, but uh, uh, certainly it's not part of the Warhammer uh, uh, game and hasn't been for years. Mm -hmm. um, so to some extent, there's going to be a, a warhammer equality, and not least because I am involved in it. Um, but I didn't want to, when I did the book, I didn't want to do anything that actually just paralleled or copied Games Workshop. I felt that was inappropriate. Mm. And so the, class, the, the, the armies that are in there are classic fantasy armies, mm -hmm. some of which are very much the sort of thing that Games Workshop also do. Absolutely. Um, like, you know, your elves and your, uh, uh, I, I call it a knight's list, but, it, you know, it's a, it's a medieval list, mm -hmm. um, similar to the Empire and Bretonnia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and um, uh, I I didn't include um, a Ratman list or a Lizardman list, uh, primarily because I don't have those armies and I, I didn't know anyone who did. <laughs> so mm -hmm. so they weren't really part of the uh, of the whole Erewhon, putting Erewhon together. Right. Um, uh, but also because it's hard to do a Ratman list without referencing Skaven. Yes. Uh, I, I, I know Ratman are something that's common to D&D and various mm -hmm. other games. But really, I know what people have got as Skaven armies. Mm -hmm. uh, and similarly, I know in terms of Lizardmen, it's going to be um, it's going to be Slan and Lizardmen and uh, Skinks. Yeah. Um, and there are some Me Too ranges out there which are similar, but, uh, which use the ideas. Uh, but I, um, I, di I didn't want to get too close to it. Um, right. well, so what I did with the the, um, uh, the, the first one I did, a Snake Man, I think, mm -hmm. that was actually Nick Eyre, who kind of collared me one day in the car park and said, how about we just do a list for my um, – uh, for, for, he did a plastic set to go with his um, – He did? Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Um, uh, Frost something archipelago. Uh, ghost. Yeah, it's a Frost Cray. There's yeah. a supplement. Yeah, ghost archipelago. That's, that's it. it. Yep. Yeah, uh, and he'd done a range for that, and uh, which I, I liked. It's got some nice stuff in it, mm -hmm. and I, I had already bought and put together a few of the of the uh, sort uh, of the snake men, mm -hmm. which to me are lizard men. You know, I mean, look yeah. at them and I go, what are lizard men to me. I suppose they're snaky, but right. they've got legs. Uh, uh, so I just went. I, I said, yeah, I can do that. So I, I. I I put a little list together that just used all of his, all the models in his range. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was quite fun. And, and of course people said, Oh, can you add all these other things? That mm -hmm. Are they traditional lizard men or, uh, you know, they're often specific to, uh, to the, to the, to the, to the uh, games workshop version where you have the two, the small and, you know, the, the skinks and the lizard men. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, well, I'll have a think about that and see what I can do. And, and I've sort of done my best without necessarily, treading on the ip you know i didn't want to do that right uh so so, so I, I, but, but you know what well, the minute you go there's going to be a bigger more fighty one a smaller more uh, uh sort of running about and throwing things one you've immediately got an orc and goblin dynamic yes uh, and that was why we did it in 
um, uh, it, it, back in the day at Way Games Workshop. Mm-hmm. It was to create that dual dynamic. Um, uh, but it actually is quite nice. It's quite a nice little list. It's got some uh, uh, got some interesting stuff in it. And I think if you've got a Games Workshop Lizard Man Army, or indeed models from any of the other uh, companies that uh, make uh, uh, similar things, uh, you should be able to um, put an army together. Yeah. I quite, I quite uh, Eureka miniatures do some fantastic things, which I, 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 I always meant to get because mm-hmm. they're based in New Zealand, which makes you a little bit nervous about um, shipping, uh, ordering from the UK. But my, uh, my mate Nick um, has um, just started Eureka UK. Ah. So I'm hoping when he's settled, I shall be able to uh, get in touch and have a uh, uh, an army of him. And they make these little—they're almost like little turtle men. Mm-hmm. Like Shalomans. Yes. And there's a. Uh, yeah, have you seen them? Oh yes. They and there's sweet. a giant turtle that you can ride on. That That's you have little beast. turtle men riding great. on the back of. Right. So good. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so when I did the list, I had that half in mind. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's yes, a great that, idea. That, I, yeah, that'd be cool. I think. Definitely. And there's some nice dinosaur models too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I know. Some war games companies make dinosaur models, but you go into a toy shop, and there are some fantastic dinosaur there models. Are great ones, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, going back to your yeah. story about the Balrog, nothing like a little kid looking at a dinosaur toy saying that that's not authentic enough to make a toy company want to make a better dinosaur. Um, as a primary school teacher, let me tell you, kids have opinions about their dinosaur toys and they love to share them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you can see why the, tell you what as well. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. And tell you every little feature about them. And if you're going to try and tell me that, uh, kids can't learn that sort of thing. Ooh, yes, they can. They do love a technical term. Do you know, I was obsessed by dinosaurs when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, I've still, the oldest book I, I own is a book about dinosaurs that was given to me by my auntie in 1966 <laughs> for oh, Christmas. Wow. Nice. Yes. Nice. All right. Well, I, I got to ask, Rick. I'm sorry. We're skating around it, and now we're going to plunge right into my favorite army that you've done recently. And, of course, that's the rats. Let's talk, let's yep. talk dirty rats. Um, so uh, rat men... As you say, it's hard to talk Ratman without talking Skaven. Because at least, as you say, there are alternative, a lot of, as you would put it, Me Too um, lizard lists out there. And there are some rat, some great rat models, especially recently, um, as the market on okay. GW models has gone through the roof. Um, there are more and more third-party rat alternatives. Um, but yeah. I was very pleased as a Skaven player... Um, who wasn't interested in necessarily playing Skaven and other game systems to open this list and go, I have that. I have that. I have that. I have that. And it just, it was just a wonderful tick box experience for me. Um, and because as a Skaven player, you end up with 10,000 rats, um, you know, different Skaven and different sh- uh, shape, size, colors um, to all of a sudden yeah. have, an army list that is so incredibly inclusive. Um, and I, it was my experience when I first opened the Warlords of Erewhon book was there were, I mean, okay. I opened the Barbarian list and went, yes, I can take my entire war, Warlord, uh, sorry, Warriors of Chaos army. Yes, my Orc and Goblin army works for two separate army lists. This is fantastic. But I don't think 
any list more inc- was more inclusive of my collection than the Skaven, or sorry, the Ratters list that just came out. Um, you put a lot of work in that list, clearly, to be, have it be so inclusive, but also have it not directly step on GW's IP. It has its own personality. Um, do you want to talk about that process? Because that couldn't have been easy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, you're right. Uh, um, do you know the process was I started, and once you get going, you get into a, mm. a mindset. Uh, so I thought, well, I've got to include you know basics. To, mm. to me, a, a Ratman army is a, a horde army, mm. uh, and um, I think that's how it started out at Games Workshop as well. The idea is you, you know, the, the the idea of of, rat, of rats coming out in these vast numbers mm-hmm. and living amongst uh, decay and destruction. I, I think that's quite that's solid um so i started off with that you know your basic core rats and mm-hmm. them being uh almost in almost dispensable as individuals mm. and, and 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 scatty cowardly as individuals mm-hmm. you know like a, like a a rat on its own is it but on mass being that dangerous nori thing mm-hmm. so yeah i think that core character is is, is it, skaven have it but i think it's core to the concept of, of a rat man agreed um yeah and I, so i so you start off with that you go well there that means you've got your core unit type uh and what sort of weapons have they got well they're, they've basically got these swords and spears it, mm-hmm. there's nothing very exotic in in, in that it's, it's what you'd expect and they're not great fighters they're scruffy whatever and they're mm-hmm. not very brave so i started off by giving them a uh, you know a leader uh, and there's the, you know, you've got your warlord, you've got your hero, and you've mm-hmm. got your um, uh, uh, wizard type mm-hmm. character in all in all era one army lists. That's just standard. Mm-hmm. So I did those, um, and then started working through some of the specifics. And as I was doing it, I, I kind of realised that it didn't quite fit a standard era one army because you can't. I wanted to make them cowardly, so low command values, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they were they were becoming too fragile. In the same way in which goblins are very fragile. Yes. The goblins being fragile is okay. I just didn't want to create a furry goblin. Yes. You, know, you couldn't use goblin, the goblin list for Skaven or for Ratman if you wanted. Mm-hmm. It would work. I thought but, about uh, it. Mm-hmm. I felt, yeah, yeah, no, it would work. But I think you'd just end up with furry goblins. Mm-hmm. And I thought the character of the rats is slightly different. So as I, I was filling out the army list types, you know, you need your guard type. Well, mm-hmm. I think Skaven, is it Black Rat? There's several types in, in Skaven, if I remember mm-hmm. right. Um, but I didn't want them to be too powerful, so they, they've got the usual kind of just step up in terms of their um, equipment and their stats. Um, and the idea of having slaves Skaven mm-hmm. or Skates, that, that seemed to be transferable as well. So I created that underclass of, uh, of really nasty rats. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you want the ones which are mutated or plagued up. Mm-hmm. So I, I did that. And I think there are several there are several unit types in in the Skaven list which would transfer over and you could use. Mm-hmm. And I kind of did a few hints. That, that's why I made the plague um, the plague ratters a uh, they they don't have a weapon attack. They have a standard attack. Two attacks, in fact. They're rather good. That's right. If I remember right. Yes, they are very good. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. They are, they are actually quite a good unit, but they um, they don't have a weapon. No. Because I knew there were lo- lots of models available where they've got these 
these rather plague plague ridden looking rats mm-hmm. that you could just incorporate into that unit, uh, and it doesn't matter what they're armed with particularly, or even if they're armed at all. Exactly. Uh, I thought it was a no- it's quite a nice image, so I took that over. But once I started to fill it out. Uh, it struck me that I needed to rework the rule for a command and the standard um, uh, the, the standard command rule that you give the warlord mm-hmm. doesn't sort doesn't quite work in uh, yeah you know I wanted something where the um, the command values were much more important and transferable so I could reduce the command values of the troops a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, and, and so I so I created that pack and pack master rule where if your pack unit and, and almost all the ratters are packs, mm-hmm. if your pack unit is within ten inches of a pack master, then you don't just test uh, on the pack master's command. Your command counts as the pack master's value. So for all purposes, and that includes, of course, for automatic breaks. That's right. Uh, so it keeps you it keeps you up. Um, yeah, uh, and that, that that works pretty well. Yeah, and it makes in a retrospect, difference. yeah, it does, it, and, and it, it makes it makes a uh, it's, it makes the army unique, mm. uh, which is something I was looking for, uh, because you know there are so many iterations you could of yes. uh, uh, of army type. I always say there are six. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, once you've done six, you know the fast, flighty, shooty one, the the really solid, slow moving one. That mm-hmm. so once you've done six. You've covered most of the bases. Yeah. So finding a different angle is quite uh, quite tricky, um, but I, I thought that good it was good. It it, it makes uh, ratters distinct. It uh, does. Uh, and then I it does, and I managed to include some of the. Uh, I didn't give them the chariot, but mm-hmm. I gave them that sort of sort uh, the cart. Kind of like a mine wagon, a cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can imagine that in various ways. And if you've got. Um, something uh, like a doom wheel well that wouldn't do exactly uh, but if you wanted to, yeah but I, I had something more in mind that was like a mine cart with a little bell on the front that the guy mm-hmm. was ringing as it was being pushed down a mine shaft and into you know into the enemy uh, probably dwarfs at the bottom yes exactly something like in uh, uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah uh, I was thinking uh, um, Indiana Jones of the Temple of Doom you know that's mm-hmm. <laughs> so something like that but um uh, otherwise, I think it's um, you know it's a, good, it's a nice list. I, I enjoy putting it together. Yeah. I had to think about it a bit. Yeah, and it's it, it's yeah. a very um, in the best way possible. It it really encompasses what I love about um, sort of what I loved about playing Skaven. Or it, it's it's very it's vicious. Um, it deals out. It can deal out a lot of damage because you have. Um, the verminous rule and the choking rule and you can get around armor which is sometimes you know hard for uh, you know armies that maybe are lower strength and these guys are lower strength um but for all the damage they can kick out and as though they're cheap and they have tons of numbers um they they have resilience four and a low leadership at that yeah so they are, um, I think what I'm trying to say is they're a glass-jawed cannon, and I absolutely love that. And I want, you know, yeah. it's going to, I'm going to I'm gonna go big or I'm going to go home, and that's fine. And that's, you know, why I play this army, and it's going to be fun. Um, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's true. Uh, the other thing is they're very good at um, taking out, enemy. you know, a lot of 
people put together an army and they, they have a very hard character, particularly mm-hmm. um, in the knights list. You know, you make your hero super hard and give him a magic weapon and everything. Mm-hmm. And he, he almost wins the game on his own if you're not careful. Well, these guys are very good at taking them out mm-hmm. because they've got the choking rule on top of the verminous rule. That's right. So, yeah, and you, and you can apply those as you, uh, and, uh, an enemy hero just on his own anyway. But mm-hmm. you can suddenly his armor's not counting for anything. Um, and if you get one hit, you've suddenly got two hits. So it, it, it becomes quite dangerous. <laughs> yes, very much so. And I, I so, am embarrassed to say I have not now, gotten this on the tabletop yet, but my God, am I, am I looking to do it soon? Well, I've only done it in, in a kind of a playtest scenario. Mm. I've, I've not played it in anger, and I don't know anyone who has. So uh, it's very much a first iteration. Uh, as we were talking about sculpting earlier, I mm. thought, you know, if I sit down and work out a list and then play they test it and play test it and you know spend months and months and get other people involved and get it all really right it's never going to happen yeah. so what i'll do is i'll put together a list i'll do some um i'll do some play testing in uh, solo mm-hmm. uh, invite my uh, mate nigel to come around and play mm-hmm. one game sort of thing uh, which is never a never a uh, uh, never a great play test of rules but always good fun <laughs> exactly uh, i'm sure nigel hates I, uh, i'm sure nigel uh, hates it too yeah uh, well, he's he's much more into the historical and ah, um, right on. Uh, Amazons and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, 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 and and if it seems to be working, if it's all if it's all pretty much as I was expecting, just go with it. And if it needs tinkering with later on, if I get some feedback that goes, no, you vote this glass hammer is too hammery or too mm-hmm. glassy, <laughs> and it might be, you know, I'm not I'm not 100 percent because you can't test every permutation right. playing solo mm-hmm. you, you just don't it, it doesn't get you in the same way where somebody else will see an opportunity you've missed right uh but i thought get it up there let people read it and enjoy it as because mm-hmm. i've hoped i've tried to make it entertaining <laughs> uh, exactly. and let's see what the feedback's like yeah and then if the feedback is uh useful i can make changes it's very easy to me for me to do that nice um I'm quietly confident. <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, yeah. again, you've spent time putting together the point system, as we talked about, and you have the basic idea of how the the whole mechanics behind the game work, and you followed those mechanics. So it's not like you've gone out on left field and invented something out of nowhere and not, you know, put some, some actual elbow yeah. grease into it. You have, and as the guy who invented the game, it's not like you don't have experience in this. So um, for us, I mean, it's just a matter of, um, you know, seeing if we can, as as we as we nerds do, we do tend to break um, or try to break things when we find them. So having, having that, I think, uh, you know, having a, <laughs> nothing like a, a lot of eager nerds to uh, playtest something to let you know that it doesn't work. Um, and, of course, I've been oh, saying yeah, nerds what? a lot, but I do say that as a term of endearment, gang. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's, it's interesting. Isn't it? Over over the years and the decades pass, and, mm-hmm. and words slightly change their meaning. Um, and, of course, being brought up in uh, in England, mm-hmm. we would we now use words like uh, nerd and geek or whatever, which seem very American to me, but uh, they, they just get used commonly. Yeah. Uh, We'd never, we would never have used those when, when we were fourteen-year-olds playing war games. Uh, those words didn't exist. Yeah. What were we? I don't know. I think we were, we were uh, probably a variety of less pleasant names that I can't repeat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got those too. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> 
the joy of um, well, that's the other thing. I guess mainstream gaming has become, or game gaming has become more mainstream. Um, man, it was oh, absolutely. It was oh. punk rock back in the day. Yeah, yeah oof. It, it it was um yeah well uh, it, it was definitely something that um uh was uh, people would deride the fact that you were playing with toy soldiers very, yes very much yes and yeah. we'll leave my mother out of this because i'm pretty sure she still dies <laughs> anyway <clears throat> yeah well okay you brought up your buddy and you talked about how um he loves historicals let's let's lean a little into warlords of erawan historicals here for a second and get into the romans now this is a list that i i know a lot of people at least down here in australia are super keen exist because they have um war bands and armies for other game systems and this allows them to take some of the fantastic models i think down here most of the people i know who have romans have the warlord models um, and are using those um, to play a game that's put out by Warlord. In this case, you. Um, but I thought that was that was a nice turn. That you know they're they're seeing new life in a new game system, um, which, as you said before, is what Warlords of Erewhon is all about. Yeah. Uh, well, of course, War- Warlord themselves have just released SPQR, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is a similar a game with similar objectives. It is. Um, but um, I, uh, it, it, if, if what happened was that they, I think um, Matt, Matt Sprang had that game mm-hmm. and he had it ready to go and he approached Warlord with it. Uh, uh, and um, at the time, uh, Paul Sawyer uh, and John Salard, mm-hmm. um, they, uh, they did say to me, you know, well, we'd like to do this game, but if you'd sooner do a historical version of Warlords of Erewhon, well, that's we could do that instead. And I thought, well, I'd love to do a historical version of Warlords of Erewhon, but the time scale you're talking about, like you know, a few months, mm-hmm. it's just not practical. Yeah. So you know, go ahead, do the SPQR because it's all ready to go. Matt Sprang's finished it; it's play tested; it's it's all good. Um, and uh, you know, I'll just I'll just potter along with Warlords of Erewhon and do my thing with it because mm-hmm. I don't regard it as a I don't terribly regard it as a commercial thing. It, it, to me, it's just something I'm doing. It's a bit of a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they did. So they released SPQR, and they've done all of these um, uh, like little sets for it. They've almost mm-hmm. like rebranded their ancient range SPQR, uh, which I've not played. Uh, I'll look through the rules. I did, I did, I did a, you know, I did a, a as part of the Warlord sort of some management team but part of the warlord team exec team mm-hmm. I, I i read through the rules and thought yeah these are good to go you know yeah. i just would give them a green light mm-hmm. uh so um uh, uh so they've already done the whole ranges um and a few people have said to me oh it'd be great if we could play romans in warlords of erewhon you know as a fantasy list really mm-hmm. uh so i thought well it's very easy to do a historical list and add wizards to it yeah <laughs> which is essentially what you're and maybe the heroes become a little bit more heroic than they need be mm-hmm. uh, and i think i added a chariot um because uh, you know chariots or carriages definitely existed in the roman world mm-hmm. um they don't not really part of an army but you know so i i just did that and you know romans are my thing i i, I can do a Ro- i can do roman army lists in my sleep mm-hmm. um so no no worries there, and, and I've got huge collections of Romans. Um, so I think somebody was saying on Facebook, "Well, oh, can we see your Roman uh, warband?" And I was thinking, "Well, I, I, I've got 
uh, I, I just pick out the models from my armies that I would need for a warband. Right. Uh, uh, you know, in, in most of my Hail Caesar stuff is based up onto multiples, but I've got um, a lot of Wargames Foundry Romans, some of mm -hmm. which are on singles, and I've had some singles done for um, uh, for Erewhon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and and actually, and again, uh, going back to uh, going back to my fumblings with toy soldiers mm -hmm. when I made my. When I made my Celts, my my uh, uh, for um, uh, Wargames Foundry all those years and years ago, I also made a Roman. So, oh, did you? He uh, looks a bit, yeah. He looks a bit like the Romans in Asterix. You know, Asterix, the uh, <laughs> yes. uh, oh, yes. cartoon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not they're not terribly realistic. Got massive nose, mm -hmm. and um, being Roman, and uh, I don't think the they've got the correct number of. Um, uh, with called lames, you know, the uh, segmented armor. Mm -hmm. I think I just did five because they look chunky. <laughs> so mm -hmm. they're a bit caught, they're cartoon Romans, really, but I've got some of them. Anyway, I have many Romans, is, is what I'm awesome. saying. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, well, I guess, Rick, the question is, though, on all those Romans you have, how many pillums do they have? If I'm uh, reading that right. Uh, well, of each but. On the whole, they've all got one. Yeah, Pelum or um, uh, Pila uh, is, is plural, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, they are. Um, they, they're, they're just what Romans of the first century, well, really first century BC, first century AD, mm -hmm. uh, second, cent second century AD, going up to about 250. That's your standard Roman. That's your Roman, uh, classic Roman mm -hmm. kind of image. Um, and they should carry the jet. I can't remember exactly who, who said it. It was uh, actually it might have been Polybius in, or, or Livy, in which case it'd be re referencing the uh, Punic Wars. But um, they're supposed to have carried two. Each each legionary is supposed to carry two. One of mm -hmm. which was a heavy one with a might have had a weight on it, and one of which was a lighter one. And I presume there were th one thrown and then the other. Um, but um, I always like to have Roman infantry with a with a with a peeler. With the pendulum, mm -hmm. um, some of my Roman infantry have only got swords. Some of the um, foundry ones have only got swords. Yeah, but um, uh, I always assume they've got uh, some sort of um, uh, yeah, they've got, they've got a pendulum as well. Um, so it's the same true with Celts. You know, all all Celts and Gauls, Britons and uh, Spanish would tend to have a. Uh, a a number of lighter javelins or smaller spear. The distinction between a spear and a javelin is slightly false because the ancient world didn't necessarily use those two words to describe sticks with pointy things on the end. Oh. They used a variety of words. That makes sense. Yeah. Some of which you're, yeah. Uh, some of which then confuse people doing research for war games. So a, uh, a Roman cavalryman carries a uh, a lance a lancia, mm -hmm. which word becomes lance. But really, it's not a it's not a lance. It, it's a uh, it's not a short spear, but it's a it's a spear. Right. But it's a spear that would often be thrown in, in a very short range. Oh. So over time, the words change their meaning, and you have to be sensitive to that. Um, and I'm not a I'm plainly not a uh, a uh, uh, an expert in the language or mm. in the literature of the classical period, but I'm fairly well read. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I'm well enough read in the principles of archaeology to know that when you're doing research based on literature, you can't take things at face value. 
so you know most of that that's why in Erewhon spears are chuckable I'm right. assuming people have got uh, a, a fairly ordinary common or golden spear and probably another smaller spear mm-hmm. uh, guys have only got very slight light weapons that you would only throw or you would only ever use as a thrusting weapon in the emergency right. um, are, are, are javelins um, and you would get troops like that some, some of the Greek skirmishers I mean basically they're out there with a bunch of javelins uh, and, it, it, and if you're find yourself face to face with another enemy in a similar position you'd take one of your javelins and you'd be using it as a uh to thrust with or to parry with mm-hmm. uh, either that or you'd throw it and run like mad i think <laughs> yeah exactly. but you know I, I i i don't know if you've ever done any sort of reenactment or, or whatever but um uh if you've done any sort of quarter staff fighting you know you, a spear isn't just something you thrust or whatever it's it's something you you can use right as a uh, to, to you know to knock over, smash against, and mm-hmm. and so on. And I think as war gamers, we we're very inclined to compartmentalise yes. um, weapons uh, uh, rather than uh, uh, think in terms of well, you know, he's got that weapon because culturally that's what they build. But right. you know, they, they, their use can be different in different circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, I always used to say when we were doing a uh, we were doing a an online game at one time. When we were planning an online game with uh, Climax, mm-hmm. uh, the guys put together a, a, a system for, for combat mm. based on D&D, because that's what most um, online games do. Uh, and in D&D, of course, a sword causes, yeah, I think it was D4 damage, and a, a bigger sword causes D6, and a double-handed sword might be D8 or D12. Yeah. Yeah. It's something like that. So the amount of damage was caused by the weapon. It didn't really matter who had it. If a halfling had a double-handed weapon, right. it would cause the same damage as if a great big bloke had it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I just thought this was mildly ridiculous because, as far as yes. I was concerned, uh, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than an ogre with a spoon. Yeah, right. You know, because he's going to take that spoon mm-hmm. and he's going to cause you some damage. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I think that's generally true of weapons. You know, it doesn't really matter what weapon's been carried; it, it's much more important who's got it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, I, I usually apply that principle. So, so as I say, in Arrow One, I try to make broad distinctions with weapons, yeah. uh, and uh, and spears are um, spears are a multiple yes. weapon. But I thought with Romans, I really had to create rules for the pilum because it's such a distinctive weapon. Yeah, and it has such a distinctive um, tactical role. Uh, so, as you know, what I did was I said, well, I didn't want it to be a really expensive weapon. Right. In terms of points value, so I, I, I went for no range, but it can only be used for exchange of uh, missiles, which is pretty much how it was used historically. I mean, it did mm. have a range, but uh, it was it was used primarily at the point of contact. Right. Uh, and then the first use, it gets SV2. I tried different versions. I tried just making it SV2, mm-hmm. just too dangerous. Uh, yeah. If it's just a one-use SV2, it, it it kind of is okay because you know you're going to take uh, a, a lot of damage the first time you go in, but mm-hmm. after that you're you're down to something that you can tolerate. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I tried five-inch range with the, the same uh, split SV, mm-hmm. and the problem with that was that at five inches you never throw anything; it's just right. too short. Yeah, you got to charge. And 
Yeah, and also five inches, is it half a point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or is it one point? Or is it no points? If it's no points, it seems like you're making it too good. And if it's yeah. one point, it's too... So in the end, I thought, let's just try it as a simple mm-hmm. exchange weapon. And uh, actually, I thought that worked a lot better. Uh, people will have to let me know what they think. Because again, you know, sometimes uh, it, 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 you, you try these things and it seems okay in the context of your own games. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and other people struggle, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I thought it did. Uh, I thought it did the job. Now, with the Roman list in general, do you think? Uh, I mean, as a man with a large collection of Roman models, do you think that your list is? Uh, I mean, of course. I'm asking the guy who wrote it. So I know you may be a little yeah. biased here. However, Perfect in every um, way. yeah, there you go. Um, do you think that the list, um, I mean, it, there really are a lot of uh, unit type options in the list. Is it as inclusive as you'd like? Or do you think you might expand it in the future? Given that that's one of those, um, it's sort of, I don't want to say a genre, but um, an army list type that okay. could be very wide spanning. Well, you know, uh, I I included every historical troop type that I could think of. Yeah, and I am um, not an expert, by the way, which is why I was asking. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, no. Well, uh, I say I'm not an expert. I'm pretty well read because it's something I've always been interested in. Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty well read upon that. And, and, you know, in terms of books on armor and Roman armor and Roman – yeah, no, I do keep up. Mm. Um, Mostly the things which have been – uh, let's let's say you wouldn't necessarily expect some uh, some of the discoveries about horse armor. And there are cataphract units and clipinari units mm-hmm. uh, in r- the Roman army from the f- uh, about first century, certainly second century onwards, where you've got the more heavily armored cavalry types. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not as heavily armored as they became. Uh, the, the Roman army became a much more of a mounted force after the third century. When you get the it, it, you get the third century collapse around the middle of the third century, the, basically the Roman Empire did, it collapsed, mm-hmm. um, and the old Roman em, Empire that is in your head that because you've seen the movie mm-hmm. isn't you, you, everybody knows and understands that really comes to an end, and many people now think of the, me, the medieval period as starting from the th- end of the third century. Mm. Um, because the later Roman Empire, when it was con- reconstituted, uh, had a lot more in common with the uh, later early Middle Ages mm. uh, than, than it did with the preceding classical period. Um, uh, and there's lots of reasons for that. Some of them are massively demographic because there was a, a series of plagues that wiped out the populations. If you, you look at the size of the armies and the populations in um, the Punic period, mm. they're huge armies. They're vast, and, and Rome becomes a, a, a city of millions of people, mm-hmm. and the whole of Italy and is uh, is well is is very heavily populated, and North Africa as well. Um, and then from the third century, you get the Justinian, you get the Justinian plagues and things like that. Uh, uh, you enter a period where I think human populations are just generally across the world become quite large, and and they'd sustained um, some some heavy. Um, uh, 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 in, uh, plagues and diseases mm-hmm. and they were starting to become massive global affairs uh, and human populations were just devastated and, and, it, and it really affected the, um, the economies and the military base 
mm. for um, for these civilizations, uh, and you get the, you get the rise of the uh, of cavalry in particular mm -hmm. because they're mobile and can move to easily to different places. Um, I mean, the old the old scholars like the Euroman uh, uh, would typically put this down to the rise of the the cavalrymen and the discovery of spurs mm -hmm. and charging charging with the lance and spurs and that that's not not reckoned to be that that's people looking at material things and describing yeah uh, 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 that's just it's just that typical way of people think of those things um but the reality was that spurs had been used for example for uh, well ever since horse riding started really mm -hmm. um in some small way it's just the roman cavalry didn't use them they they generally the early roman cavalry they generally steered with the knees mm. um, as did greeks uh, uh but uh uh yeah you get that difference anyway so my list really covers up to that period it, co it covers mm. say the first century ad the rise of the classic roman legion from the time of marius mm -hmm. Uh, through the uh, civil wars, rise of Augustus and the, um, the Principate and then the early imperial period. Uh, first century AD, second century AD, you've got the, you know, the Dacian, Dacian Wars. And then roughly the first half of the third century AD, if you like, but it's just, I don't really, I tend to think of the first and second century AD uh, as being the, uh, the time. Up to the end of the, um, uh, you know, you, you can, you, you can kind of go up to the end of um, the reign of Marcus Aurelius, if you like. That's the. Mm. After that, it starts to go downhill. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. End so of the go. Roman that's, Empire. That's what I know about Rome. Wow, clearly yeah. you know a little bit about the Roman Empire, Rick. Um, well, okay. Well, well, so, no, the, the, no, more, no more than most people who are sort of interested in that kind of thing. You exactly. Know? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this then. Um, between the the core game and list that you put out later. Um, we have the Knights list, we have the Romans, we have the Samurai, we have the Olympians. Um, and if you look, at, I mean, even the Barbarians, if you want to, um, I faced off against a friend's um, Celtic chariot army and dog army a while back, which he made for another game system and was not historically based whatsoever, but he did use um, Warlords, um, Celt models um, for t to make that army. And um, he, when we played, used the barbarian rules. Um, now, maybe you, you're not using every single barbarian. I, I did see you suggest using barbarians at one point for someone who asked about sure. using Celts online. And you went, well, oh, use the barbarians. And he went, well, a lot of the entries don't match. And you say, well, don't use them. Don't um, use those entries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ta-da! Look at that. Um, make a themed yeah. list. But uh, do you anticipate going down the historical path further? I guess I guess I'm asking from where now? Uh, are we going? Uh, do you yeah. have any new lists up your sleeve? Do you have historical leanings? Are you going to want to do more spells, new magic items? Wh what are you thinking, Rick? Yeah, uh, do you know, I've not really thought about spells and magic because um, I didn't want the game to become a game of spells and magic. Mm. You know, and I think what I, the, the, the spells I did were um, uh, were enough. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, we had to tidy a couple of those up a little bit because they were proving to be um, uh, too dangerous. Mm. But um, uh, you know, I, I, I immediately I think the thing um, uh, people have asked for, which I'd quite like to expand into, is the uh, the chaos and the demon 
element. Mm -hmm. um, but I've got some ideas for that, but I've not really, um, I've not given it a serious go. Uh, that's probably, which I shall have to do, if only, if only for my own satisfaction. Then there's a few other things which I'd quite like to have a go at, which are slightly more wild, like the, um, like the uh, kind of Mel Nibonian, you know, the Michael Moorcock kind of a dragon rider's army and things like that. Oh, hello. Quite yes. Yeah, that'd be quite fun. Um, yes. I might, I might, be, might not work at small sizes, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I've always wanted to do a dragon rider's army. And in fact, years and years ago, when I was at uh, Citadel, I mm. picked up, a whole batch of Ralpartha dragon riders, which oh. have sat in my garage ever since. You know, not not painted, not, mm -hmm. not you know, they're still in their packets. In fact, and I think I think there must be at least a half a dozen, um, mm -hmm. and they're a nice size. You know, they're not like they're not like the modern Games Workshop dragons or some of the you know people, people make a dragon and they make it you know, how enormous my dragon is. Yeah, well, it's too big to play a game with, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, th th these are about what, maybe six, five or six inches long. That's a good size for tabletop. Um, uh, a nice, um, yeah, exactly, yeah. And as I said, I picked up a nice minifigs um, dragon from their uh, Valley of the Four Winds range mm -hmm. uh, recently too, which I've um, I've put together and undercoated and based. And I'm sat there looking at it, thinking, mm, I don't know what color to paint this. Mm -hmm. The indecision has got me. I hear you, but it's not. It's nice model. Yeah, it does yeah, strike sometimes that that. Uh... Yeah, it just gets you. That just the the indecision. The ooh, do I paint it this color? Or do I paint it that color? I've been staring at a couple models okay. myself. Some days you just gotta get in there though. And usually I find when I'm tired, I'm just like, oh, forget it. I'll paint it this yeah. color, and then I'm never disappointed. But it's always that ooh before I start that that gets me every time and keeps me from putting paint on model. Right. Oh, well, that's where I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you you described it perfectly. Um, so there's that. But. Um, uh, I've also been asked, you know, well, will you do more historical lists? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think my reply was along the line on, on Facebook, I think. And I think my reply was along the lines of, well, it's very easy because you just basically take a barbarian list and you miss out all the things you don't need. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if, if people want one, I'll certainly um, put something together. Uh, you know, I can do a Celt list because there, there is a Celt list within the barbarian list. There really. is. Um, yeah, I mean, I might be able to just do a little bit more with it. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, uh, Celts is an odd one because there's no such thing as Celts. Right. It's a modern construct. Mm -hmm. um, so really what, you, uh, what you're talking about is a, perhaps a Gaelic list. Yes. Um, and again, there's Gaul and there's Gaul. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, it's, not, it's not absolutely certain um, even that the Gaul spoke the same language across the whole of that um, – uh, the whole of what is now France and parts of Germany and mm -hmm. Italy. Um, you know, uh, there's some of the tribes that um, ran across the border are described variously as Germans or, 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 or Gauls mm -hmm. by um, Caesar. Um, and, and there's, so it's a little bit of a, of a mix. Um, and the Britons on the other side of the channel, well, uh, Caesar says that the Britons spoke the same language as the Gauls on the other side of the channel, but he never says what that language is. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we, we, we tend to assume that they spoke Celtic, um, yeah. uh, a Celtic language, uh, and only a Celtic language. But it has been hypothesized that um, right from a very early period, there were people in Brit in what is now uh, Britain, the island, mm -hmm. 
who spoke a Germanic language. It's, it's not impossible. Mm. Um, though I tend to think that's fallen out of favor a little bit more recently. Mm. Well, uh, my, my Scottish father-in-law does love to talk about um, what whenever we watch a movie or a television show, and he loves to watch a historical-based television show and then point out, yeah. that language isn't right. And you're like, wait, two weeks ago you told me it was a different language. Wait a minute. And yeah, you, yeah. you get the feeling that he, he he's constantly reading up on these things and wants to, to show that. And you go, hmm, yes. Well, yeah, well, um, well Scott, Scott's... Um... Uh, I can never remember which one's Gaelic and which one's Gaelic. I think it's Gaelic in in, in, uh, in Scotland. I, I mean, the, the Scottish Celtic language mm-hmm. and the Irish Celtic language uh, uh, are um, uh, related, right? But not the same. No, they are different. And even yeah. in yeah, and even in Ireland, there are I think at least three main dialects. Mm-hmm. Um, although, uh, uh, yeah, and the Welsh is different again it, it's fundamentally different it's um uh is it p celtic as opposed to q celtic no idea um so so it's just <laughs> different further back yeah yeah um uh and, and, and the same as uh breton breton is very similar to welsh yeah um so you know but any, anyway it, it's not really about the language it's uh <laughs> it's just um i'm just saying that you know people ask for a celt yes. army list i'm going well you can have a briton army list i can mm-hmm. base it on that or i can do a, a gaelic army list but it would be based on um perhaps the forces that fought against caesar exactly um so, which wouldn't necessarily include chariots for example and the chariot warfare was um something which uh, disappeared on the continent a long mm. time before it disappeared in uh the british isles in ireland um and, it, it, and, uh, and again, you can do an Irish list based on the. Uh, it, it, again, you be careful because if you're basing it on the um, on the Irish legendary Irish legend cycles, you're really basing it on a mythical background. But of course, it references a historical reality. Um, yep. And, and so, and so you have chariots in Ireland even before the Romans may have been in Ireland. It's something which um, became politically very sensitive in 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 Ireland because. Um, they always had this uh, Irish nationalists always had this kind of proud, proud, never conquered by the Romans thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they discovered what could have been a, a, a Roman trading colony near Dublin. It's just north ah. of Dublin, if I remember right. And this caused a lot of uh, a lot of uh, um, unnecessary, in my view, um, angst <laughs> and mm-hmm. argument. Uh, but it's not impossible that the Romans did mount uh, military ex- uh, expeditions either in support of a local chieftain or or, mm-hmm. in, uh, or to uh, protect their trade interests. Not go. impossible. Um, yeah, with the Irish raiding into Britain and so on and so forth. So there's, there's, there's the potential to do army lists for all of those things. So I will do, Brad. Nice. Oh, I love it. I love it. Now, oh, Rick, I mean... This is possibly our longest chat yet, and we could keep going probably for days. Um, Thank you for coming on to Cast Ice. Uh, It is always a pleasure. And if we stop here, then um, perhaps uh, soon we can have you back Um, because it is always a pleasure to talk shop. And uh, every single time, you know, you come on, there's just some great anecdotes. And I learned something new about you and, um, you know, gaming in general that... 
and this is a subject that I that I like to think I know a lot about. Um, and every time you'd say things, and I, I I triple take at least three times every single time we talk. So it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you as always for making the time. It is it is a a an honor. Thank you. You're very welcome, Brad. Cheerio. Cheerio, right on. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen at home, thank you for listening. Um, it is uh, it is always lovely to have you listening. This is the second year of Cast Ice, and uh, Rick coming on is the second part of our official uh, second birthday party celebration. Uh, we will return to uh, normal, regular, quote-unquote, uh, Cast Ice coverage, which is... Uh, you know, all sorts of things, um, namely like this, uh, talking about the games that we know and love, um, uh, resuming next week. Uh, I am looking forward to playing Warlords of Erewhon, uh, very soon on our uh, YouTube channel. In fact, we did have a game that was scheduled in a couple weeks ago and unfortunately I got ill. Um, but as a result, it now looks like I will be playing uh, my ratters the next time that I record or perhaps one of my others. I'm not sure, but I'm looking forward to playing um, Woe, as we call it sometimes, uh, online so you can see uh, the game played out in full uh, as we play it here in Melbourne, which I hope is the right way when Rick watches it. <clears throat> Hi, Rick. Uh, anyway, on that note, um, as our good buddy Casey always says, uh, when you are playing these games that we know and love, we hope that your dice roll hot. We hope that your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we hope that you're having fun and that you are well. This is Cast Dice saying good night. Are gone and they're trapped by-